0: Hello, I'm Becca, the owner of Meet Cute Romance Bookshop, and this is the Meet Cute Book Pod. Today we have my chat with Katie Nishimoto, who is a senior editor at the Dial Press, an imprint of Random House, and who prior to that worked for 10 years as a literary agent at WME. She sits on the boards of Baldwin for the Arts, a nonprofit founded by Jacqueline Woodson that provides residency fellowships to artists of the global majority and Together Rising, a nonprofit founded by Glennon Doyle that has raised over $35 million for people in crisis. She is based in Los Angeles. As an editor, Katie is looking for life-affirming storytelling that delights, inspires, and challenges, books that celebrate the many ways we seek and find belonging. She acquires fiction, literary, rom-com, book club, and nonfiction, memoir, platform-based, prescriptive, centering historically underpublished writers with a special focus on people of the global majority and LGBTQ writers who identify as women or gender expansive. In the world of romance, Katie has edited Queerly Beloved by Susie Dumond and the forthcoming contemporary sapphic Pride and Prejudice retelling Just As You Are by Camille Kellogg. You'll hear Katie talk about what a literary agent does, what an editor does, how she thinks about categorizing and positioning books in the marketplace, particularly books by queer and BIPOC authors, and how she's experienced the industry changing since she started working as a literary agent in 2009. Honestly, we got on a little bit of a tangent about the scope of recent history as it relates to queerness, but I hope you'll find it interesting. And now, through the magic of podcasting, here's my conversation with Katie. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to chat yeah, thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to talk to you, okay. So you were an agent for ten years, and now you're an editor. Um, I just want to start with a really basic question, which is what what is a literary agent? What does a literary agent do?
1: It's such a good question, Becca. And honestly, when I interviewed for my position at the um agency that I worked at for ten years, you know, they in the interview they asked me, you know, do you want to be an agent? Uh, and I Said yes, but I honestly had no idea what an agent was. You know, when I, I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire and I really only knew about jobs that you could see, like a doctor a firefighter or a teacher. So it's a very good question. And I sort of think about the a literary agent as in a really basic sense, a seller and the editor as a buyer. And obviously the jobs are much more complicated than that. But as a literary agent, you are, um, working with authors to, to ident- you identify what authors that you want to champion, right? And you work with them on their manuscript or their proposal, whatever the case may be, um, getting it in the best shape possible to then submit to publishers and see if somebody will then buy the book, right? So as an agent, you are identifying new talent. You're trying to sign new writers. You're working with your current writers to uh, develop their work. And the main thing that I think folks think of literary agent doing if they have any reference point is being able to make that sale to a publisher. But of course, an agent has many more um, nuances and responsibilities to their job throughout the process of publication. And I, I think of an agent as the author's first champion, you know, and helping quarterback a publication. I also think of an editor as a quarterback in some ways, but from an agency side, helping be the um, author's voice and advocate and main supporter all the way from before the very early stages of a manuscript through publication and beyond.
0: That makes sense to me. I'm a lawyer and a lot of lawyers become agents, not usually literary agents, but it is sort of a thing that people will do with their law degree when they don't want to be a lawyer. And it makes sense in the way you're saying you're you're the champion or the voice for them. You're sort of an advocate, um, except you have also a a literary background because you're looking at their writing,
1: at their work.
0: Okay, so you were an agent for a long time. What did you really love about that job and what was really hard about it?
1: Yeah, I was I was there for 10 years um, and I what I really loved about it was being able to use my power for good, I guess, you know, um, because many major publishing houses won't accept manuscripts for consideration that aren't represented by an agent, right? So you're sort of the initial, you're creating a pipeline, you know, in, in, um, in a way. And so being, especially being at a big agency that had a big name and, you know, that, um, publishing houses were familiar with and, and would prioritize, I felt really privileged, you know, to be able to give that boost of visibility and, and priority to the authors that I wanted to work with and, and see more of in the industry. So that is one thing that I just really loved about it is being able to identify the writers that I wanted to Give more of a, give more of a boost. So for me, that was a lot of times LGBTQ writers, BIPOC writers, um, that I wasn't necessarily seeing, you know, because, uh, in, in represented the space in the way that I wanted to, because I, I started there in 2009 and it's only, you know, 14 or so years ago, but the industry was really different. So that is one thing that I really loved being able to do was say, like, I have this sort of sense of access. I can, I can submit something to all these publishers, you know, and I have, I'm in that position, right? So, let me find the authors and the writers that I really want to see have that level of access you know and it was fun too you know you get to be in development with an author you get to try to sign people also see them grow over time and see them pivot into different genres or different age groups and also really have a close relationship with writers so it's also I found it to be a very creative job so there was sort of the business side and the fast-paced side which I really liked but also having that sense of creativity and and really having a strong relationship with writers which you know for me growing up like I said in this small town the fact that I could even talk to an author was so wild to me. You know, I felt very starstruck a lot of the time and I couldn't believe I was actually able to talk to to, to writers, you know. So I really loved that. And then, you know, one thing that I found challenging about it was that even with that level of access and being able to, you know, get the writers that I believed in in front of, you know, publishers and editors and all those folks, there still was only so much that I could do as an agent, you know, I couldn't force somebody to buy a book, right. So the first sort of five years of the decade that I was at the agency, I would say that there was a really different a really different energy around diverse voices, um, essentially none. So, you know, at that time, it was, I felt like there were voices that I really believed in that I just couldn't make editors, you know, buy or publishers buy. And so there was that sense of like, I, I have, I'm able to get them in front of these people, but I can't necessarily do more than that. And you know, through publication too, sometimes seeing a lack of diversity and representation in a larger publishing team and finding that that created some roadblocks or obstacles for the authors, you know, going through publication. So I think that was one of the things that I found challenging was just wishing that some of the books that I believed in um could be bought. And I will say that like there is there was a young adult manuscript that I really loved and believed that I was agent for. I submitted it. It, you know, no one bought it. This was, you know, I would say like maybe I be wrong, maybe like seven or eight years ago. And when I left the agency, I gave this writer to one of my um, close and dear friends at the agency, um, Janine Camus Tompkins. And after several years, she, I think very recently, maybe in the last year, sold um, this author's book. And I was just so pleased to see that because it just, I, I wish it could have sold earlier, you know, but I think the industry is catching up and to be able to see that really long game and see it sell was very satisfying.
0: As an agent, how much freedom did you have or how much agency did you have over who you were choosing as sort of as your authors, particularly if you were having trouble selling diverse voices, presumably Mm -hmm. the agency needs you to be picking books that you're going to be able to sell. How did that tension work in practice?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, uh. I was, the agency that I worked at was, um, a big talent agency. So it wasn't just a literary agency. And so we, there was sort of a lot of different things going on, right? So I had one of the things I really liked about being agent, an agent was having a lot of autonomy. You know, there wasn't a situation where I had to like run it by a million people to sign someone. Um, I, I really had the autonomy, um, and, and trust to be able to make those decisions because really the work that I was doing, with my own, you know. So if I'm working, if it's my, it's I had to make some of those choices myself. Like, okay, am I gonna devote this amount of time to this person? And if it doesn't sell, that really just impacts the time that I've spent. You know, it doesn't necessarily impact other resources, right? I had that autonomy. Being part of this bigger agency, we also were working with um, a lot of clients who. Maybe had their main, were mainly represented in other, in other areas or other verticals, right? So there was these giant teams that I was also on, and there was that part of the work too. So there were sort of my own writers that maybe were just writers first. And then there were a lot of other folks that I worked with who worked in other areas of entertainment, whether that, you know, was comedy or acting or whatever the case may be, and having sort of having that pipeline too, which was really helpful. And then this probably sounds kind of random, but also for a period of time while I was there, I did touring for a bunch of our and that helped, this is probably the wrong word, it helped subsidize some of the work that I wanted to try to do, you know, with Diverse Voices, because it just is another part of the business that could help bring in some of that income. And and it was also really fascinating, because I was able to learn a completely new skill um, that had some crossover with what music and comedy touring was doing, you know, uh, like, I had no idea how to do that when I first started. And then being able to book appearances and book tours for authors um, was a completely new skill set that also just gave me some Breathing room when it came to working with the authors that I wanted to work with because I had these sort of different areas, um, these different pipelines that were uh, bringing in money. I think about that sometimes
0: too, just in terms of what books we're shouting about and which books are bringing people into the store, and they're not always the same books, but like we need to have both.
1: Exactly, it's like I was, you know, doing touring for some books that just had nothing to do with my main interest, but it's like that gives me the flexibility, you know, to have to work on some of this other stuff, you know. So it, I really find it important for me to feel mission driven in some of my work. For me, I can feel sometimes very dreamy. um, And it was helpful to be at a big giant agency that felt like so far from where I had grown up and what I was familiar with when I first started and have and getting to learn some of that business acumen and be able to say, Okay, so this is what I want to do. And how can I actually do that? You know, what, what different levers do I have to pull to make that financially possible, you know, um, possible time wise, possible resource wise. So
0: you did that for A really significant amount of time. And then you decided to make the switch to editing at a big publishing house. What was your thought process in making that switch?
1: I will say that I had not applied to another job the whole time that I was at at, at WME um, at my agency. I... Um, I really enjoyed it there. I grew up there. I loved my colleagues. I loved the the work that I was doing. And I was approached um, about this position and editorial. Gina Centrello, who was the head of Random House at the time, was looking to create a position for an LGBTQ editor to have access to and sensibility in the LGBTQ space to acquire more career writers. And I had... Never heard of a position like that existing. You know, I, I, you know, I graduated from college in 2009 and that's when I started WME. And I honestly was afraid to come out when I first started working there, not because of anything that anybody said, but it really was a different time. You know, like a lot has changed in, in, um, the past, you know, 10 to 15 years. And so I could not believe that that position was being created. And I, I had not really, I wasn't really interested in editorial or so I thought, but my boss at the time, who's been such a huge mentor and just, complete lifesaver for me, Jennifer Rudolph Walsh, she was the head of the um, New York office at the time, encouraged me to take the meeting. She's like, you should just at least meet with Gina, you know, and, and see. And, you know, and so I I did, I took the meeting and I thought, I am i don't think I'm interested in this, but hearing her speak and I, I, she, I just, I fell in love with her. You know, I saw in her so many of the same qualities that I had really admired and loved in, in Jennifer, you know, like I, Gina was talking about people that she had hired as assistant 20 years ago, who now were In this position at the, at the company or had moved to this other area of the industry, but that she was, and she was still in contact with them. And that kind of real shepherding of people from early in their career. To all the way through, it's something that Jennifer did, and I could see that Gina was doing that too. And I really respected and appreciate that investment in people in the long term, you know. Anyway, so she was she was talking about this position, and I I also thought, you know, some of these what I had described as an agent. One of the things that was challenging was like, you know, really believing in a book, but not not seeing it sell. And I thought, you know, maybe I could provide that buying power and traction on that side of things that I wasn't seeing as an agent, because you know, I I, I was very passionate about working with diverse voices. And I really found that traction in the young adult and middle grade spaces and less so in adult. And, and Gina was looking to create this position in the adult space. And I, I just thought, you know, I've been here for 10 years, obviously not a huge fan of change. So I thought, okay, what is this? I could just be here for life, but I think I would be, you know, happy doing that. It was just one of those situations where at each point of the process, I felt like I was getting a green light, you know, like could not believe this position was being created, was really impressed with Gina, you know. um, I always really respect and loved what Random House was doing and thought, this is one of the obstacles that I have been dealing with. Like, what if I could do this on the other side? I'd always been a very editorial agent to begin with. So I thought, maybe this is, why not? You know, why not give it a try? Uh, At the time, you know, we weren't sure where the position would sit within the Random House group. But when I heard that there was a possibility that it could sit under the dial press imprint, that really sealed the deal for me because I had known... um, Whitney Frick, who was at the time, I can't remember if she, I think she's the editorial director at the time and is now the editor in chief. But I had known Whitney for a long time because Glennon Doyle was represented by WME and I had done Glennon's touring. Um, she was one of the authors that I did touring for, for a long time while I was there. And so I'd known her and, and you know, worked on, on Love Warrior, um, for a long time. And I'd known Whitney, who was Glennon's longtime editor for a long time at that point. So then she had moved to the Dial Press to relaunch it. And I thought, I really respect Whitney. I love what she's doing. You know, I know her. I'm familiar with her. She's coming to relaunch this, this imprint that has been around for a long time, that doesn't necessarily have an identity. It's a small, focused, women-driven imprint. I love what this this woman, Gina Centrello, is, is doing at Random House and what she's saying about this position. It was just all these green lights. And I thought, it wasn't this, this situation where I was like, you know, I've, I've long yearned to be an editorial. How can I make this shift? It was just one of these things that came my way and I took it step by step and just felt like each step was a yes. And so I made the shift and it was very scary, uh, you know, just to make any, any major change and go to a new place and not exactly know, but I'm so, so glad that I did because I feel that I am actually at my dream job now, you know, which I didn't, I would never have identified for myself as, oh, this is where what I would like to do and where I would like to be doing it. Um, but it really has become that for me. One of those things that makes a lot of sense in hindsight, maybe. Yeah, exactly. I know. I'm like, how did I not see this? But at the time I was like, I can't imagine going to editorial. I I think I, especially being at such a giant agency that was um, sort of Hollywood focused, it was a really different kind of skill set or lifestyle in some ways where I was like, agents are like fun and they do, and they talk and they're blah, blah, blah. And editors, you know, they like to work in a, in a quiet way with their glasses on. And I'm like, that's not me, but I'm literally like, that's like my, what I love to do. So I just was also like, wait a second, who am I here? It was a little bit of an identity thing, right? And, you know, and also, also finding, you know, um, especially under Whitney's tutelage that editors certainly have a lot of that, like sort of heads down editing work to do, but it's, it's also a very collaborative, team oriented job in a way that I really enjoy. I remember when somebody told me or like sort of gave me a warning when I was making the transition, you know, she said there's going to be a lot of meetings um, on the, on the editorial side. Like there's going to be just so many meetings, you know, just be prepared for that. Cause I think maybe at some smaller agencies, that's not the case, but coming from such a giant one, that's like, all I did was meetings, you know, so it it actually feels familiar in some ways, but also more me in a way that I feel really grateful for. And also just was completely surprised by, but like you said, surprised by, and then looking back, it's like, this should not have been a surprise, but it was, you know, we can surprise ourselves even when looking back, it seems so obvious.
0: Let's talk a little bit about what you do as an editor. Agents are finding authors, representing them, trying to sell manuscripts to editors. As an editor you are getting a bunch of submissions from agents? Mm-hmm.
1: That's right. Yeah. Getting a lot of submissions from agents and, and reading through them and trying to identify um, what we would like to buy. And so that decision is, of course, you know, one thing that I had to sort of learn um, as an editor is being in love with the book and that book making sense for my list and the dial list weren't necessarily the same things, you know, book publishing, I think is a very emotion driven job, you know, and so and I love that about it. But I, I I had that learning curve where I was like, oh, I would get stuff in submission. I was like, I just, I loved it so much. But then um, Whitney was very helpful in in sort of mentoring me and coaching me into, okay, loving it is certainly a very important aspect, but it's not the only one. You know, does this make sense for the dial press list? Does this make sense for my personal list? You know? does this, how do we see it in a publishing way, not just a sort of reader, looking at it as a reader versus looking at it as a publisher and editor. So we get all these submissions and try to identify what we're into, what we'd like to buy. Um, that process looks a lot of different ways, you know, um, and, you know, you could meet with the author and, Talk to them more. It um, could go to auction, whatever the case may be. But that's, that is a big part of it is, is buying books for your list. And then after that, of course, there's the job that is inherent in the job title editing, right? And so that is a process we could talk more about too. But that, you know, you're essentially getting the manuscript as, as is from the agent. And of course, the agent and author have usually worked on it themselves very hard. And then at that point, you kind of come in and do that, you know, work on that editorial process with the author, which again, looks really different depending on who you are as an editor and, and also on your author, you know, and how they work. Um, I'm a very hands-on editor as I've come to find out. And um, having that initial conversation with the author, you know, before they've made a choice about what publisher to choose is really is really important because you can say like, here's what my editorial vision is. You know, what's yours? Like what what flexibility is there? How do you like to work? What are you looking for from an editor? So there's reading the submissions, there is deciding what to buy and, you know, hopefully um, being able to. Um There's then buying it and being in that editorial process with the author. And then the other part of the job, which is actually... A giant, and what it takes up the majority of my day is going back to this term I used earlier. Is really quarterbacking this this book all the way through publication. So there is so much stuff that an editor does that I did honestly did not know about, even as ten, even being an agent for ten years. So you know everything from writing the descriptive copy to choosing the BISAC, which are the ways that the book is categorized to figuring out the cover and figuring out how are we going to talk about this book? how are we positioning it? How do we want readers to understand what the book is before coming into it you know and all of those pieces we get a lot of support from huge teams, thank God you know from from sales from deputy publisher, from marketing and publicity and design and all of those folks like there's all these different pieces along the way to to get that manuscript from the word document that you're maybe working on the first time you get it. To having it be that finished book. And I'm not an expert in many of those areas. You know, that's, we, we have like so somebody who does the interior layout and somebody who looks for the, the right designer and all of that. But I do think, try to think of myself in some ways as that quarterback all the way through the publication process for that author because they have their agent who is their advocate. But on the, on the edit and the publishing side, I'm really seeing that firsthand and can really be that translator and liaison and communicator to the author, but also working with so many BIPOC or LGBTQ writers and knowing that we have very diverse teams at Random House, which I'm very grateful for. And it's a huge priority, but also knowing like, okay, how... What translation might I need to do for my internal teams around like, you know, this is a, for example, a masculine center character. So that's what, this is what this character needs to look like on the cover. Um, and, and trying in some ways to be that translator without having the author have to do that list. Cause it's, I think it can be kind of like spiritually draining to sometimes have to do those translations, but I can do that, you know, that's, that's part of what I'm doing, you know, um, as an editor. And so there's a lot of different components to it, which I also enjoy too, because that editorial muscle is fatigues easily, you know, so being able to then switch to like talking about this other thing or working on copy, or having a cover conversation, it keeps different, it keeps the muscles like firing on different cylinders in some ways. So there's always something new to turn to in a different part of the brain to activate. Wow, you are really selling this as a career. This sounds really interesting. <laughs> I'm busy,
0: but I'm sure somebody listening will be like, hmm, editing.
1: I will say like, I really thought that an editor's main job was to edit. And that is actually like the thing that is the hardest to find the time to do. And I feel really, really grateful that I'm under, I I know I keep saying this, but Whitney for the boss and and queen of the dial press is really, really, she's an amazing editor and she's also a really strategic publishing person. So I feel so privileged to be working with her because she is so good at the, uh, how to position a book, how to talk about it. Like, you know, like, we need this book to feel big. How can we like convey that internally? How can we convey that externally? And that is something that I find really fun, but I don't necessarily, I didn't necessarily come in having that, like being fully versed in that, Um, you know, my first day when I landed at the dial press. So it's been interesting to see how many different pieces there are to the puzzle.
0: So as part of that positioning, you mentioned that you As the editor choosing the BISACs, which is people who aren't in the book world may not know, but there's these categories that show up when you're like when I'm looking at lists of books to buy or they sort of they self-categorize to help people understand what kind of book it is. And they'll be like romance, but it's not just romance. It's like they get really specific, really specific, like billionaire romance is a BISAC, Mm -hmm. but I've been really interested in particular in the sort of the line, the blurry, hazy space between romance and women's fiction and mm-hmm. how things get positioned there and what the thought process is in making those selections. I don't know if you've had to do any of that, but do you have any thoughts about like what is also women's fiction as a category?
1: Oh my god, I don't love the name of, but what? what I know. Oh, my God. How problematic is that? situation it's for that is like such a big part of our industry at this point, you know? Okay, so this is something that I find fascinating. So we're talking about how to categorize a book and that is that impacts how a book where a book is shelved, right? In a store. So okay, we can pick three buy facts and I actually have the BISAC, our like giant BISAC spreadsheet open because I was just thinking about this with Susie Dumont who um, wrote Really Beloved, which came out last year. So she is working on a new book, which is so fabulous. And um, I was looking at the BISACs for that one because there are, they get really specific. So for, there's like fiction dash romance dash rom-com, right? So that would probably be like the first BISAC for that one. But then I was wondering, because it gets, you know, it's like fiction, romance, historical, Scottish, you know, like it's. Fiction, romance, historical tutor. There's fiction, romance, clean and wholesome. You know, it's, it's later in life. Um, there's all, all paranormal witches. It, it goes all, so I was like, anyway, this book has to do with astrology. So I was wondering if there was an astrology subcategory, which I did not find, but there is billionaires. And then, and then right under billionaires, it goes sports, billionaires, firefighters, vampires, shifters. I mean, it's just, it's all over the place, right? So the first bisac, I think, like, my understanding, and I could be wrong about this, but, um, is that it's sort of the most important one. And, like, it's the, you want to be the most general, but, like, um, not general, but, like, if you could pick one bisac for this book, what would it be? Right. So getting really, really specific sometimes is, is the way to go. And sometimes, you know, not being specific is, is better. So, for example, I would typically choose rom-com as the first one for this book. And then maybe as a second one, picking lesbian or LGBTQ. And we have this like genius person on our team who is the person that I go to for buy fact questions. And I've had so many fascinating conversations with her. This came up with a book that I have publishing in June, which I'm super excited about. Um, it's called Lucky Red by Claudia Cravens. And it's a queer feminist Western that is so propulsive and fast paced and sexy and fabulous. And, you know, looking at this one, I, I was like, okay it's I guess sort of this women's fiction category which is essentially like I guess fiction that women would read you know and it's like I don't know whatever it's that's like the weirdest category that it's so cringy to even say right but then it's like do it's also western it's also it's also there's also romance you know it's also there's also a lesbian storyline or it's like it's lesbian it is a lesbian storyline you know but it's also adventurous you know and it's also historical so how do we categorize this and I had the long, I had so, like the longest email chain with Gina going back, Gina Wachtel, who's our, well, my personal, but I think also our BISAC genius talking about like, if we shelve this as Western first, is that the right thing? Or is it more like, is it more about going to general women's fiction, but it could it get lost there? And also again, like you've been, like we're sort of saying, what is that category? You know, what is women's fiction? Which I don't, I, I will not even like pretend to have an answer to in this conversation, but it can feel like, I don't know, sometimes picking that category can feel like, I am actively in my internalized misogyny in this moment. (laughs) Something is just so uncomfortable about it. So um, anyway, BISACs are, are, I think they're so fascinating because and we can always change them. I, for example, I have a poetry collection coming out in August by the most brilliant person that I think is going to be, real, uh, already is and will continue to be a spiritual leader for our time, named Kai Cheng Tom. And Kai Cheng is writing, um, has written this, this very short poetry collection called Falling Back in Love with Being Human. And the, I found the BISAC conversation for that one fascinating because poetry is, I could be wrong about this, but this is what I remember. Poetry for some reason is only under a fiction SAC, but this is not fiction. Um, so and it's also there's like a gifty element to it because it's not like just a straight up poetry collection collection. It's 30 love letters, you know, then that are followed by 30 prompts and it's very specific. So trying to figure out how to shelf that and be able to identify it as a book written by an amazing trans Chinese Canadian woman, but also that it is poetry, but it's not fiction, you know, and, but it's also a little gifty and it has a sense of like health and wellness to it as well. So then trying to figure all that out into three biceps is very complicated. So thank God I don't have to make that decision by myself, but I do find it to be a fascinating conversation, which does really impact, uh, you know, for on your end. Because do you shelve things by the first bicep? No. No. so how does that work on your end? So (laughs) what's the problem I'm
0: doing over there? (laughs) Well, but no, but I have such a specialty store, right? So right. I think if I had to run a bookstore that had lots of sections for books that I'm not as familiar with, I would be shelving by BISAC a lot more right. often. Right, right, But because that's not the case, I'm putting them where I think that they should go. But I think that that's pretty uncommon. I am trying to buy, I mean, so when, when we buy books for the bookstore seasonally, we can filter the catalogs by subject. And I think it's filtering oh. them by BISAC. So I yeah. search- right? Because the catalog has like a thousand books in it and I cannot click through all of them and find all the romances. So I go fiction romance. And then I'm like, I'm going to miss them if I just do that. So I go fiction women's and I do fiction LGBTQ, but it re- is really interesting because there are some books that are just like clearly to me, genre romance, like the authors have published a lot of genre romance. This is, a, and they're, they're in women's fiction. And if I didn't do that, mm-hmm. I would miss them. And it's interesting mm-hmm. that that is, I'm always curious about that.
1: Yeah, me too. I, sometimes I look at some other books that have published and see how they are categorized. It's interesting. It really is so different. Like, then I've, I've also had a conversation about fiction dash literary, which is again, like, what is that category? You know, it's actually a category that I was suggested to stay away from in some cases because it's so general and also what people think is literary is so different and sometimes being more specific about some of the content is, is is more helpful. So, but then again, so many books are shelved in that or or have that FISAC as part of their category. So it's it's very interesting. And I think there's like, when you are working with authors who are not white, cis or straight, there are, thank God, there are a lot of FISACs now that can um incorporate those categories. But for a book that's written by a white, cis, straight person, like some of those more in general categories are some of the only options, you know, but there are more options when that's not the case. But, you know, it's sort of a complicated conversation around what biceck is which bisac are you choosing? Like if this is the author's identity, I would love love to have a biceck reflect that, but is that going to shelf it in an area that doesn't really make sense? So then if, okay, so then how can we bring this part of the author's identity or part of what the the character's identity that's really important to the story into the copy, the descriptive copy or the keywords instead? But that's like some of the strategy that so many of the folks on my team, Whitney Frick and Avita Bashrod, who's our deputy publisher, are so good at. you know, so it's very really helpful that not have to make the decisions by myself.
0: <laughs> I am endlessly interested in the this sort of behind the scenes decision making because everybody's just trying to get books in front of the right readers, right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, that's what everyone's trying to do. But I think particularly with identities that are not, straight, white, and cis, those books often are pitched or people see them as being like, not for me if I don't share that identity. And yeah. you don't want that, but you also want to be able to identify things about them that people might find interesting or relatable or relevant.
1: Yeah, I know. It's it's like something that sometimes I can feel really resentful about, you know, when I most bitter moods, I guess. But, you know, because it's, it's so interesting, because like, uh, you know, I am um, mixed race, I'm half Japanese and half white. And I am, I'm a lesbian, but I look to a lot of straight people, especially when I had really long hair, I looked really straight, I think, like being petite and having long hair and like a feminine face a lot of people were like, really, really into telling me that I was definitely straight, you know, for a period of my life. Um yeah. And anyway, so sort of being like, I have this experience of being in between some identities or feeling in between some identities. And it's like, when I was growing up, it was like, I was able to identify with Anna Green Gables, and, you know, Nancy Drew, um, and whoever, you know, in all these books, and it's like, Sometimes I can feel really bitter, like, you you don't think you can identify with this character because they don't share your identity? Like, that's all I've been doing. Trust me, you can identify with anyone. Like, there were no half Japanese, half white, queer protagonists when I was growing up, like, you know, in the 90s in my, like, small town library. It's totally possible. But then I can sometimes I can feel resentful. And then sometimes I can feel like, you know what, like it is, I felt really grateful that I have been able, and and like so many other people that I work with are able to have, it's kind of a, there's a power, you know, in, in, in knowing that I can identify like all across the board with a lot of different kinds of people and how sad it is in some ways to feel that like, oh, I can't identify with this person because I don't share this or that, or it's not for me. I've never had that experience because I've never had the opportunity to. So like I said, sometimes I can feel like a bitter old man being like, how can you not blah, blah, blah. And then other times I can feel like, thank God, you know, that I've had that experience because I know that that, I know that I can identify all across the board and that gives me such a more expansive lens into, into what I can read or consume or listen to, you know? Yeah, that is really
0: true. I feel like that about, this is such a specific thing, but the the queer stories that we have in the bookstore, I went to a booksellers convention and there was like a sort of queer meetup at one point And we were talking about where we shelve the queer books and everybody had such different strategies and everything was a strategy, right? Because you're trying to get the books to people. So like somebody worked in a children's bookstore and they were like, we don't have a queer book section because we don't want kids to have to go to the queer book section because that might be uncomfortable for them or they might be with an adult or whatever. We want them to to find a queer book on the shelf with all the other books. And some people are like, no, we shelve them separately because people want to be able to find them easily. And I think that's such an interesting, yeah. And so we Try to split the difference where like I don't have a queer book section because I sort of fundamentally it feels weird to be like, here are the historical books and here are the gay historical books. Like those (laughs) are different and they're for specific people. But we also want people to be able to find them easily. So we try to do like one feature table every month with some sort of queer books. Mm -hmm. But it is really, yeah, I don't know. I haven't figured out the solution for the store for that yet. But it is the sort of thing where like, I want everybody to read these books and I also want the specific people who want them the most to be able to find them.
1: Yeah. That is fascinating. You're, you're really reminding me of when I first came out and I like had no idea how to be gay. Um, I didn't know any gay people at all. And going into bookstores and like, um, or libraries and trying to look for the gay section, but that feeling of like, oh my God, is somebody going to see me? Like that, that, I was, I was, you know, I came out at the end of college, so I wasn't even, you know, so young, but also them feeling like sort of a secret thrill of like who else has stood in the section. I don't know. It's complicated. It's, it's just, I find it very fascinating. And I guess it also depends on maybe where your store is and who, you know, comes into the store and what ages you're serving. You've mentioned how the industry has been changing since you got
0: into it. You said you graduated from college in 2009. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first book that you sent to me and how I sort of became aware of you was Susie Dumont's Queerly Beloved, which is, it's a rom-com, it's a romance set in 2013,
1: I think, is that right? right? Or 2012, it's like, right. And now I can't recall, I even had a calendar, but this is one point because it, it, it starts in the fall and ends in the spring. So there's two sort of years, but it's right before um, marriage equality.
0: Yes, which is so wild because I was there, I was at the Supreme Court the day that decision came down completely Mm -hmm. coincidentally because I was applying to law school and I was visiting Georgetown and I was just there. And that feels like it just happened. But also the idea that marriage equality is so recent feels really strange, even with all of the really awful legislation and the way that I think the climate has been shifting for the worse. Mm -hmm. It still feels like that decision was a long time ago. And it really wasn't that long ago because you are not that old. And that was significantly after you graduated from college.
1: Right. I know. This is a really interesting conversation that we had about this book because it was going to publish essentially, it published in 2022. And so the time period it was talking about was like a, roughly a decade ago. And we had some really interesting conversations about it. In- you know, it's contemporary in some ways. because It's only, you know, 10 years ago and also in some ways was felt a little historical because especially in queer years, you know, 10 years is a very long time, not just in terms of legislation um, and politically, but even personally a lot of queer people talk about having a delayed or a second adolescence, you know, which I can certainly identify with having like my high school boyfriends and stuff like that and feeling like, you know, I'm growing up and then like coming out and like having sort of that experience again in my, in my mid twenties being like, now I really feel like I'm, I'm actually like figuring out who I am and, and falling in love for real for the first time and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, it's all to say that clearly beloved sort of felt like, you know, as I imagined um, younger readers who are maybe in college or right after college reading it. And, you know, for for them 10 years ago, like they were, they were not having the same experience of marriage equality coming into effect as I was. Like you said, I'm not so old. Um, I'm 35. But even I think, you know, for 10 years ago, for me, I remember I was, I remember exactly where I was when that notification, you know, when that um, notification came through on my phone and, you know, I was with my girlfriend that I was living with at the time. And that was in my early or mid twenties or something like that. And for me, that feels like it was a hundred years ago, you know, in my own lifetime. So it's just interesting how the, I guess the scope of history and how we think about history when it comes to LGBTQ rights, um, and LGBTQ personal lived stories. I think it's just on a little bit of a different timeline. Um, and it's been interesting to talk to my authors about that and, and just try to think through, like, how do we want to, and then how do we talk about the book and how do we publish it and where where does it go um on the shelf and all that kind of stuff
0: yeah and so in terms of that corresponding to how you've seen the industry shifting you talked a little bit about how there's at least an interest in or awareness of diverse voices and different kinds of stories how have you experienced that and i guess like where where do you see it going or hope that it's going mm-hmm. in the next i don't know 5 or 10 years
1: So this is my personal take, which could be completely wrong, but this is my own experience is that like I started... In 2009, it was like, Diverse Voices like was not even the conversation that was happening. Um, it was like, that was nothing. And then when, I can't remember, I, I could be wrong about these years. I feel like Black Panther came out um, and Crazy Rich Asians came out like three quarters or so or two thirds of the way through my time at WME. And then it felt like there was a little bit of a, like a slight like jumping on the bandwagon of realizing like, oh, there's no like money behind um, stories that center um, black characters, or BIPOC characters, or, or whatever the case may be, and so I, I think maybe this is this is my experience that maybe different from some others, just being just being at um, like a very Hollywood-centric agency, and so there I could feel that there was like a little bit of like oh my god, like people like if there's a black person, like people will pay to see it, like I, I didn't know that was that was possible, you know, and it's like uh, yeah, hello, you know, but so there was a little bit of like a, a slight jumping on the bandwagon there that was annoying to be honest, but also like, uh, annoying in the sense that like, okay, this has always been true. Like, thanks for like understanding finally, but also, uh, okay, I'll take it. Like if that, this is what, this is going to be a priority now, like however we got there, however late we got there, like I'm like on board for that, you know? Anyway, then, I came to dial in 2019, you know, which was right before the pandemic um, hit. And I would say the sort of other big shift that I saw, which, you know, a lot of us here in the U S experienced was after, after the murder of George Floyd, um, having a really different national conversation, um, around race and equity and how what's happening, you know, actually in the, in the nation at large, what's happening in the workplace, what's happening for our BIPOC employees that conversation I really had not seen before. Um, and I've seen a lot of shifts happen after that. And, you know, when I was hired, it was before this, it was before this sort of national shift, at least like in the entertainment or, or publishing space happened. And, you know, I really like appreciate and respect that about random house and about Gina as you know, like making the decision to hire, like usually uh, historically, um, if a publishing house needs another editor, they would choose an editor from another publishing house. That's normally how it would work. And so like, it's not like it was so radical to choose me, but in some ways I do think like having in 2019, the summer of 2019, you know, before this national conversation sort of gained new energy um, to hire a mixed race LGBTQ person, to acquire LGBTQ voices who was not an editor and had no, had never had no, had to learn that whole new job in like a more senior position. I think that was a pretty, in some ways, a pretty radical choice, especially because I was moving to Los Angeles. And so it was like working remotely before that was a thing. And so I appreciate I could just have it seeing that sense of priority on, on Random House's side was very impressive to me. Um, and then of course, you know, sort of a year later when the nation was in, um, a complete upheaval, what, you know, much needed upheaval, um, and seeing that impact both politically and personally and in, I think it was happening, you know, for many people in their homes, in their communities, in their workplaces, in, in many different spheres. I did see a shift in our industry where many publishing houses started to hire more people of color in earnest, and and expand their hiring pool outside of just edit, editorial, you know, and hire at not just at entry level but at more senior level positions. And I also saw a lot. I'll, I'll just say it. This is so cringy to me, but like. In the summer, um, after and sort of during these protests, the number of submissions that I saw from agents that were written by Black writers, it was so, it was like a flood, you know, and it's again, the same like sort of tension where it's like, good, like, I want to see these voices and like that you should be, you should be championing these and advocating these voices, you know, but it's also like, I don't know, it's just like hard. It's like, it took this, you know, like, and I don't know, just on the one hand, it's it's frustrating. And um, there's something about it that does feel a little like you kind of want to grimace. And on the other hand, it's like, okay, like, let me read these submissions. They're here now. And like, if If everybody's on board now, then let's do something about it. But it's so interesting in book publishing because it's like, you know, when something is submitted to us, typically on average, it would take like two years minimum for that book to actually come out. So it's like 2020, we're getting all these submissions, people are being hired. But, you know, I was hired in the the fall of 2019 and my first book didn't come out until the spring of 2022. So it just takes a minute. So then it's like, you know, we're, we're seeing agents signing and prioritizing and selling, um, the books by, um, black writers, by BIPOC writers, by first generation writers, by LGBTQ writers. We're seeing more of that diversity happening at large. Those books aren't coming out for a couple of years. So it's like, okay, we're seeing a lot of those sell for a lot of money. It feels a little bit like, I don't know, it could sense in some ways there was like a little bit of some, some people in the industry who'd been there for a long time looking at their lists and being like, oh, I didn't know this, but it's all white people and being like, "I, you know, there's some of like that going on, but it's like, good. Like I would like these writers to be paid like a huge amount of money who have not normally even been given entry into our um, industry. But this is all, sorry, it's a long answer to all this to say then now some of those, it's like 2023 now. So some of those books came out last year. So some, of, We're starting to see that impact, I guess, that was what I'm saying in a delayed way because the industry at large has become more diverse in terms of who's working in and where voices are being prioritized. And I'm very glad to see that. And a lot of those books are just coming out this past year and this year. So now it's like, okay, how can we publish them in the right way? And who is coming to them as readers, you know, and we've seen a lot, a lot of books sell in a huge way that I can't even imagine would have like been submitted by an agent 10 years ago, you know, so I am seeing a, a major shift happen. It was sort of this blip around like 2014, maybe or so, and then a real push now. It has seemed to have a staying power. This prioritization of underrepresented voices, and I hope that it continues. You know, but the the way that that can continue is by books by BIPOC and LGBTQ and um you know first generation and marginalized and you know disabled writers selling copies, proving like there is an audience, and that is obviously something that you are such a big part of of doing on the bookseller side.
0: We have only a few minutes left, but I do want to ask. You had mentioned when back when you were an agent, being able to sell more diverse voices, more diverse books in the YA and children's space Mm -hmm. than you were in adult, and you're working in adult now, and you edit... You don't only edit romance, you edit memoirs and other things. And I'm wondering, are you seeing, I, I often feel like romance in a lot of ways moves really quickly the genre, but I think in terms of diverse voices, it actually moves significantly slower than, than YA in particular. And I'm wondering if you're feeling any movement there, or if you have any thoughts as to why, for example, so like you've edited a couple of sapphic romances, romances between two women, and there were a bunch of them that came out in like the last year and a half or two years. But prior to that, there were very, very few where there were a lot of YA books. And I wonder, if you have an idea as to like, what is going on there.
1: I know. I know exactly what you mean. Um, I was just having a conversation about this with someone recently and there is, I don't know exactly the reason why. I know what you're referencing. I see the same thing. One thing that I have just wondered about personally is you know, for young adult queer romance, they are sort of inherently chaste because they are for a young adult audience. And when it comes to romance for adult, one of the key components is sexiness, you know? So they are just like rated differently. Like they're like rated like R or PG-13 or whatever. Not PG-13, rated R, I guess. And I just wonder if that has anything to do with what we've seen come out. Because I, I will say that I do think that young adult middle grade have led the charge in many ways when it comes to prioritizing diverse voices. But there are some inherent limitations, of course, because of the age groups in terms of, not nuance per se, but in terms of like, some of the detail you know there's there, there aren't there's gonna be like adult detail in there it's been really interesting because I just wonder if there is something if it's we're still at a place where it's more more queerness in many ways is more acceptable when it is chase and I don't know if that's the whole thing but I just I love seeing that in, in in the books that I work with like editing sex scenes is like honestly so fun to be honest with you but I wonder if that is I wonder if that's part of it.
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, it's a little bit like, well, now we have Cheerios commercials with like two dads, but we are still not seeing a lot of queer kissing on television shows where we would like otherwise be seeing straight people just like making out all the time. Yeah, Uh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Before you go, do you have any books that you've read recently or have loved, anything you want to shout out, or even a book that you've edited that's coming out soon?
1: Well, hopefully I've shouted out Lucky Red by Claudia Fravens, which is just a fabulous, fabulous thrill. And Just As You Are by Camille Kellogg is a lesbian, pride, and prejudice retelling. It's like the exact lesbian, pride, and prejudice retelling we have all been waiting for. So I'm super excited about both those books. But I will honestly name a few books. I read four books this weekend. I listened to them on audio. I read Hello Beautiful by Anna Politano, which my boss Woody frick-edited, and it just is so, so gorgeous. And my chest felt tight, but like in the best way possible. Well, the whole time I was reading it. I also read Vera Wong's Unsolicited Advice for Murderers by Jesse Q. Sutanto, which I just was so fun. I love, I had recently read um, Dial A for, for Aunties by the same author and it just was so fun and, but also heartfelt. It's fabulous. I also read Lone Women by Victor Laval because it's also a, a Western that does not center like that white male cowboy and it was really, it was really, really like fabulous too. I, so I, they're all really three different books, but um, I love them all. I haven't gotten to Lucky Red yet. I loved Just As You
0: Are. It's a great Pride and Prejudice retelling. I think it does oh, a really yeah. fun job of it.
1: Yeah, and Camille's an editor too. So that was a really, really fun to work with Camille. So I'm so glad you love that one. And I can't wait for you to read Lucky Red. You're going to like it. I sent it to you because I... um it has this like romance element to it even though it's not a rom-com and it's like kind of in a different category but I'm excited for you to read it. It looks it. so good. Honestly, I'm so excited for it. Thank you so much. I mean, this your podcast is fantastic. I can't wait to listen to more of your episodes. Um and I really appreciate you having me on. It's so generous of you. This has been
0: delightful. Come back anytime. I have 800 more questions for mm-hmm. you. And there you have it. A huge thank you to Katie for sharing insights drawn from more than a decade spent in the wild world of book publishing. If this conversation has made you want to pick up some of the books she has edited, you can snag Queerly Beloved by Susie Dumond in our shop or on our website, and you can pre-order Just As You Are by Camille Kellogg, which is out April 25th, and, you heard it here first, is one of our upcoming queer romance book club picks. And that's all for this episode of the Meet Cute Book Pod. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Becca, the owner of Meet Cute Romance Bookshop in San Diego, California. And I hope you'll tune back in for more deep dives into romance writing, reading, and publishing.